Well, it's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. If you will turn uh, in your scriptures to the Gospel of Luke, we will be hanging out in chapter 15, which in part does deal with the parable of the uh, prodigal son. And it's, it's such a beautiful um, image that we see in this, this overall overarching idea that God does actively pursue lost things. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for his perfect love that goes out, seeks the lost, uh, and, and is intentional in bringing us into the fold. In uh, in the last time that we were hanging out together uh, in the parables, we were looking at the parable of the barren fig tree. And, and, and what we left with was this idea that it's not enough to be in the vineyard. It's not enough to be planted in the vineyard, but you need to be bearing fruit in keeping with your repentance. And what we what we recognize is that the owner of the vineyard will come looking for, church, for, for fruit. And when he comes seeking fruit, does he find any? And God is the owner of the vineyard. Uh, and then what we, seen, what we saw in that parable is that the, the vine dresser of Jesus Christ, but God's right judgment is says, I've come and I find no fruit. What should we do but chop it down? But the vine dresser says, let's, let's do one more year. And so we, we, we were encouraged to note that it was the mercy of God that gave more time for bearing fruit. But we also looked at the, and recognized that apart from Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. Jesus said that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's not about bearing fruit and keeping with our own self-righteousness. It's not about bearing fruit as if we have some ability in and of ourselves to produce some holiness and some good works that's worthy of obligating God to reward us. Not at all. All of it is of mercy. And the very fact that we are in the vineyard is of mercy. But not only that, the vine dresser has done all of the work on our behalf. Yet we respond to what the vine dresser has done in making it possible for us to bear fruit. And we repent and keep in repentance but through bearing fruit. But this, this week, the same sort of idea, we're going to learn from Jesus Christ uh, what, what really is the proper response of when things that are lost are found. And so today, today's uh, message is titled, Rejoicing When What Was Lost Is Found. And the major doctrine that I want to unpack this morning is Jesus' love and mercy towards sinners is great. And this love brings joy in restoring what was lost. And I'm really excited to unpack this idea that, that, that the beauty of the gospel is that it is driven and motivated by the mercy of God. It is the mercy of God that leads, it leads us to repentance. But the mercy of God is, is motivated, motivated by the love of God. And that's such a beautiful thing to unpack. So let's go ahead and get into the word this morning. There's a lot to cover. We won't read all of chapter 15, but we will do our best to uh, uh, unpack most of 15. But if you'll stand with me with your word, Luke chapter 15, we will start in verse 1. And then we'll jump uh, around a little bit, so I'll let you know. All right, it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you that there will be more rejoicing, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner 
who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And Jesus goes on. He says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, we'll jump down to verse 17, but we know the intro to the prodigal son. He asked for all of this money. He's going to leave. He wants to spend his inheritance now, and he gets out there. All sorts of uh, bad things have happened, and he recognizes that this isn't where he wants to be, and this isn't who he is, and he wants to go home. But there's, there's some, some unpacking to get there. But he starts, and we get this in this narrative, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost. And is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came home, he heard the music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you gave him, the young goat, that I might celebrate with my friends. He says, but then his son came to yours. He says, verse 30, but when the son of yours came, he who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Man, what a powerful passage. There's so much going on here. And as we get going, I do want to ask you one question because really what set Jesus into these parables was this accusation from the Pharisees. And we can't miss that because in the opening of 15, what does it say? It says, now the tax collectors and sinners, you see they're all lumped together there, we're all drawing near to him. And as the Pharisees were looking, the Pharisees and scribes, they were looking and they saw this. They saw, here's Jesus, and in their mind, Jesus professed to be this religious person. Jesus professed to be this teacher of of, of religion, this moral person, this upright person. And according to their standards and assumptions, a guy like that has nothing to do with sinners. You would actually defile yourself being in the presence of these folks. So what is he doing with these folks? And so he's actually... He's actually doing something that they don't expect him to do. And their, 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 their conclusion is, is, is one that Jesus feels the need to respond to. And that's what sets us off into these parables. Because what they said is this man receives sinners and eats with them. And they don't just say it as a, 
observation. Hey, he's sitting with sinners and he's eating with them. They were grumbling when they said it. They were upset that it was happening, and in their mind, that shouldn't have been happening. And Jesus says, hey, let me teach you something. And he goes into these three different parables. But as we get started, I want to put on the screen a question that I think we all have to address. Is, are you put off by sinners? And has Christ not received you? Because I think it's possible for us, and we'll talk about this a little more in just a second, but it's possible for us to foster the Pharisee's heart. And the Pharisee's heart is to be put off by sinners, to be put off by people who we look at and we look down upon. And therefore, we start to look a lot like the sinners who were actually the Pharisees and the sinners who were, who were dining with Christ and hanging out with Christ. Christ received them, yet he rebukes these other sinners who were the Pharisees who were going to rebuke Christ. It's this crazy mixing of the roles because what you have is you have the Pharisees and the scribes who are supposed to be the people who had it all together. And they're looking at Jesus and Jesus is supposed to be this religious person and Jesus is not doing what they thought he should be doing. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, well, you're missing it. And all along the sinners are like, this is great. We're being received by Jesus. So you've got this hodgepodge of these different people in different places, and the response is these three parables. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take three stops this morning. We're going to take a look at this idea of sinners being lost yet received, and then two, we're going to look at this idea of how the lost are found, and then we're going to end with this idea of repentance brings joy. So put up on the screen here, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling, saying... This man receives sinners and eats with them. All right, so as we said, that the Pharisees were upset with this. And actually, they're looking at him and thinking, does he not know? There, that could have been some of it. It's like, but no, he knows. He knows, and he's still doing it. But what's interesting is that this is actually what Christ came to do. Um, and so their condemnation was actually his mission. They were condemning him for doing the exact same thing that he came to do. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus didn't come to isolate from sinners and show himself uh, more holy than them. He was more holy than them. But his whole mission was to come and be a man and live the life that us sinners cannot live, perfectly fulfilling the law of God, Dying the death we should have died, raising again, ascending, and he's currently reigning, and he's returning. So when the Pharisees are looking at Jesus, and, and, and these folks are lost yet received, they're confused. But they're confused because they're missing the entire point of Christ's ministry, which was to receive sinners, to save sinners. And, and what we have to look at is, is there really two Two different categories, and we've got to be right on this. There is the category of those who are lost, and there's a category of those who are saved. To get from this bucket of lost to this bucket of saved, how does that happen? It doesn't mean that you start here and you think, okay, here's the five things that I've got wrong in my life. Let me clean them up. Let me fix them, and then I can move to this bucket. That's not at all what happens. What happens is while we were still in this bucket, literally the scripture says this, while we were dead in our trespasses, Christ died for us. Christ made a way through his moral perfection, through his merit, 
for us to go from here to here. And how does that happen? It happens by grace. But, but the actual idea, when we think about this lost and saved, when, we're, when, we are, when we are wrapping our minds around this, we've got to be clear as to who is who. And I'm not saying that you go around and start to, tr- start to try to make these proclamations as, you're saved, you're lost, you're saved, you're lost, you're saved, you're lost. But we kind of do, don't we? When you start talking to somebody at work, and you can kind of sense, man, my spirit agrees with your spirit. There's, there's something there. Sometimes before they even tell you they're a Christian, you can kind of sense it sometimes, right? There, there's this insight that the children of God have for one another. But let's say we go another step further, and they start talking about the things of God. Boom. You're like, wait, okay. You are someone who's benefited from the gospel. Me too. And there's this sense of belonging. There's this sense of unity. There's this sense of we are in the same group. And that's not an elitist group. That's a group that recognizes by grace alone I have been saved. That I recognize my sinfulness that has been taken care of by the love and mercy of Jesus Christ who has saved sinners. But here's the thing. There's also this lost world. And what we have to be careful not to do is to judge the lost world by saved standards. We can't do that. Why? Because they are acting according to their lost nature. But you know what it is our job to do? Our job is to preach the gospel to the lost. So there is a way in which we do identify the two groups. Now, when you come here, you assume some things, don't you? You assume most of the people here are saved. Maybe a safe assumption, maybe a bad assumption. Um, because I believe it is possible for us to be in the church but not in Christ, right? Uh, the analogy has been given many times, sitting in the garage doesn't make you a car. Sitting in church uh, doesn't make you a Christian. Uh, and, and we can come and we can assemble and we can actually waste all of our time together. We can sit here and listen to the songs being played and we can totally zone out and think about all sorts of other things. And then when the preacher gets up, you can, you can do whatever you want to do, get out your phone. And I used to do this when I, in younger years and I'd play chess on my phone. Um, and not pay attention, and God convicted me. What are you doing? You can totally miss what we're doing here, and that's to, to commune and worship God. And so to assume that just because you're here, you're saved is a false assumption. Yet, what we don't do is we don't come in here, and every single person we come up to, even though we've known them for years, and we know their testimony, and we know that the Lord has done something in their heart, we don't preach the gospel to them again to try to save them, do we? No, why? Because we believe they already belong to God. Yet when there are some people we come into contact with where it's clear that they are not children of God, what do we do and what should we do? We should preach the gospel to them. But here's the thing. Two groups, lost and saved. We don't hold the lost to the same standards as the saved because they're acting as the, according to their own lost nature. They're objects of wrath. God judges them. You and me don't judge them. God judges them, but we preach to them. But here's, let me, let me flip it. Membership matters. Because once you are in the fold, once you belong, we do have accountability. And that's what we have to look at. This When we look at this, the Pharisees are judging the sinners, and they're judging them according to their saved standards, and they're also getting on to Jesus because they're like, why would you have anything to do with these folks? But that's what Jesus came to do, was to make salvation possible for sinners. But then these people who are in the group are going to get rebuked, all right? And the three parables 
do that for us. So we have to understand that this is part of what Jesus Christ did. And this is, this is what we've got to recognize. But as we question ourselves, I do want, I want you to think on that question I asked you. Are you put off by sinners? And I, I, wanna, I want to throw this little scenario out there. And then we're going to move on to how the lost are found. So I want to ask the question, do you receive sinners? And when I ask you this, I want to read this. I wrote this down for us to kind of work through a little bit. And bear with me, because this will be a little bit awkward. But would you be offended if Jesus let homosexuals, thieves, and people from the other side of the political aisle draw close to him? Would you be offended if Jesus showed up, and then all around him were all these homosexuals, and thieves, and sexual offenders, and Republicans or Democrats, wherever you fall in that? Would you be offended that he's hanging out with them? You have to wrestle through that in your own heart because if you are offended by that, if you are put off by that, you have the heart of a Pharisee. And you've forgotten who you are. You too, Christ came to dwell among. I'm reminded of R.C. Sproul Jr. who said that in in the idea where Jesus hangs out with sinners and, and, and if you get from that that you should hang out with more sinners, you forget who you are in the story. You are the sinner Jesus came to hang out with. You don't go hang out with more sinners. You are the sinner. Don't forget that. So don't foster the Pharisee's heart by being put off when Christ comes to dwell and receive sinners. That's the whole point of Jesus' ministry. So how are the lost found? Well, I want to put it up there for you. And it's really simple. But God pursues the lost. There's a lot more to that, but let's summarize it. God pursues the lost. And I'm so thankful. And as we look at these parables, I mean, that's exactly what we see here, right? Verse 3. So he said, he told them this parable. When a man, he says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after them? Right? He says, go after that one that is lost until he finds it. And so this idea that 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 Jesus is literally trying to convey is that when there's something lost, which is sinners, the correct response is that God pursues them. So Jesus is answering the grumbling of the Pharisees by saying, isn't it fitting for the category of those who are lost for the one who can save to come pursue them? And so when we think through this, this is exactly what's happening. And as I was wrestling through this, I'm thinking, okay, so in this parable, Jesus has got this, this flock, and there's a hundred, but then one of them leaves, and, and it's the idea that the shepherd says, okay, I'm going to leave 99, and I'm going to pursue the one that lost. But when you think about it in these terms, what has happened in the first case, we've got three parables, but in the first parable, what we see is that the, first, that the lost has wandered. All right, so you've got an animate, live thing wandering away. And what happens when that sheep wanders away is it's heading, it's heading to the wilderness where it will most certainly die unless it's rescued. So the idea that Jesus is communicating is that this helpless thing has wandered away and it's wandered into great danger and its death is certain unless it be rescued. A sheep doesn't go out into the wilderness and say, I guess I gotta build a house. It's gonna get cold tonight. 
better start collecting branches. The sheep's going to go out there and wander around until nightfall, and then it's freezing, and it's like, ah, oh, wow, didn't see that coming. Or, or the sheep doesn't go out into the wilderness and say, I need to build some weapons. There's probably things out here that will get me. So I'm going to build some traps. I'm going to build a fork. and sharpen some sticks. I'm ready. No, the sheep's like, ah, it's dead. Like, that's what sheep do. They're not out there getting a strategic plan together and being like, all right, well, I guess I'm alone. I don't know where everyone else went, so let's gather our resources, inventory our stocks. All right, here's the plan. Let's go. Jesus intentionally uses this image of this vulnerable thing wandering away into danger, into certain death, unless it be rescued. Jesus starts there. That's us. Many of us have wandered our way into certain death unless we be rescued. That is where we are. If Christ does not come to save us, our death is certain. So Jesus says, don't be, don't be lost on this parable here. This is what happens. And the second one is this interesting idea that it says that the lost are like valuable coins, right? So we think about this. This is what Jesus says. Um, and instead of giving up, it's not like the person notices that they've lost this valuable coin. They're like, ah, whatever, and quickly discard it. No, the, the person searching puts their mind to the task to finding this thing. So the first parable, this thing has wandered away into certain death unless it's rescued. The second parable, what we see is that this lost thing is not quickly discarded, but the one searching has intention in finding it. And I, I really think through this that rather than discarding it, um, th- this person always searches it out, and it's always on the searcher's mind until found. And so I was wrestling through this, like, what does this look like in the gospel? But that's true, because you know what? Sometimes you and me, uh, we, we, get, we get our focus off. Have you ever had like a, a real plan, and I'm going to really focus on this, and then you do okay for a few weeks or a few months or a few days, and then, bam, priority shift or plan shift, things happen, and then you, you forget about it? The, the, the person looking for this valuable coin can't stop thinking about it. Have you ever lost something that was super important, and you can't do anything but look for it? Maybe you're late for work, and you can't find your car keys. Do you just give up? No, you're like, I've got to find these. This person who's looking for this valuable thing, Jesus is communicating that this is what God looks at. He says, he says I am focused on finding this thing. And it's not off of my mind. It is, I am focused on it. So when we think of Jesus' ministry, his ministry was to come and save sinners. That's, that's what he's done. He's come to save the things that have wandered away and their death is certain unless they be rescued. But then the way he pursues is he pursues as if he's pursuing something valuable that is always on his mind. Jesus didn't come with a half-cocked plan as, ah, I guess I'll do this for a little bit and if I get bored, I'll switch and do something else. Jesus' entire plan, his entire intention, motivation, everything that he did with, with, with great intentionality, never losing focus to save sinners. So that's the second thing. This, the third parable, we see that the lost desires to come home. This is an interesting thing when you look at this, right? Because what happens in, in the parable that we, we read is there's thoughts of home that start to take over. 
But not only that, there's a conviction of sin. But not only that, there's an assurance of reception. Think of that. In this parable, Jesus is communicating the gospel process. We feel lost. We feel like this is not home. We have thoughts of home. The Holy Spirit starts to do a work in us to, to help us recognize that this isn't it. And he also starts to help us recognize that we are sinners. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. You know what else he does is he helps us recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And so we have thoughts of home. We have conviction of sin. But it doesn't stop there. What we actually have in Jesus is assurance of reception. The parable of the prodigal son has those elements. He starts thinking about home. He's convicted over his sin, and he expects to be received when he returns. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's what we preach to people. We preach, you're lost, you're not at home. You're not where you should be because everybody who is apart from God is in a place that they shouldn't be. And it's not our job to go figure out who the elect are. It's not our job to, to, to understand um, the thoughts of God in that degree. Our job is to go preach the gospel to everyone who is lost. Preach the gospel to all of the world. And we can't give faith. Only God gives faith. But it is our job to preach the word. It is our job to pray for the lost. We can't convict the world of sin. If we start to try to convict the world of sin and, and, and be mad at them for acting as lost people, they're just acting according to their lost nature. Yet that ought to grieve us in helping us recognize that, that is the in, that's the emphasis here, that they are lost and under the wrath of God. Unless they be saved, they are going to perish. So we are motivated for, by love for them, not by judgment towards them. And then reflecting back on our own salvation, that we were lost. We were convicted of sin, and we too had assurance of reception when we turned to Christ. And this is what it looks like to start to apply these parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son, that every one of them, there is intentionality that God is the one who pursues the lost. But I want to ask you, where is your home? Where is your home? Because if this is your home, you may be lost. But if you're looking to the future, the true home with Christ, that's where we should be headed. But then not only that, what do you do with conviction and shame and guilt? Do you have conviction of sin? Because that's part of what the Holy Spirit does, is he works in our hearts to convict us of sin. And it's our, our work to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that's of grace. That's the grace of God showing us where we've gone wrong. And it's, it's, and it's part of our responsibility to respond to that conviction to say, okay, God, yes, I see the ways in which I am not like Christ. And if you're lost, you say, I see the ways in which I've eternally grieved you and I deserve death. But the beauty is that it doesn't end there. And so I ask you, do you doubt your reception? Because some people doubt that they will be received by God. I was talking with a coworker a few months ago, and we were in San Diego at this conference and having this great discussion on all sorts of stuff. And it's just the culmination of years of 
kind of side talking about it, and then we like sat down and actually talked about the gospel. And it was crazy, and I wish I could share all of it, but I can't. But one of the things he said to me, he said, but Rob, what do I do with the feeling of, and he couldn't find his words, the feeling of, and I said, do you feel abandoned? Yes, I feel abandoned. I said, you feel abandoned because you think that God judges you because of your sin, and that because of your sin, you won't be received? Yes. He said, that is the gospel, that Christ receives sinners, and think, think, think. Christ doesn't receive sinners as if to give credence to their sin, as to justify their sin, as if he's going to say, you know what, that's okay. Go do, go do whatever you're going to do. That is not at all how it works. But how it works is that he sees us rightly. He knows us exactly where we are. He knows where we've come from. And he also, you know what, hey, check this out. After you're saved, you're going to send some more. And he's not lost on that either. And so when you're thinking, I doubt my reception, you're thinking of a performance-driven gospel. Your performance. As if you've got to obey God before he can love you. But remember the order of operations. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Why? To die in our place. So I ask you those three questions. Where's your home? What do you do with your conviction and your guilt and your shame? And three, do you doubt your reception? And with the remaining time, I want us to unpack this beautiful image of repentance bringing joy. Because in every one of these parables we just read through, we looked at, this is how they end. And I'm going to put each one of them on the screen for us. So the first one, with the sheep being lost, he says, just so... I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Do you remember in Mark 9, 12, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but it is those who are sick. The Pharisees are like, why is he hanging out with all those sick people? That's what the physician does. The physician doesn't hang out with all the well people. If he does, he's, and that's all he does, he's no, not doing his job, or we don't need him. Jesus came to heal the sick. And Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus says, so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then in the second one with the gloss coin, he says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do you, do you get this common theme? And then in the third case, he says, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, this is the prodigal son, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Do you see that? Every one of these has an emphasis on the thing being lost, being found, but also this a correlation to repentance and joy. There's a correlation between repentance and joy. And so as we argued in the major doctrine that Jesus' love and mercy towards sinners is great, and this love brings joy in restoring what was lost, I think what we have to look at is this other idea that Jesus' love and mercy towards sinners has a purpose, and that's to see joy come through repentance. The purposes of Christ 
is to love us, to save us, but to see sinners repent. And when they repent, joy comes. That's a, that's, that's a maxim for the rest of your life. Not only do you receive joy when you repent the first time and turn to Christ, I hope every one of you can remember back on that day or that time or that season when God was doing a work in your heart for the very first time. I hope you lived, as, I, hope, I hope you still have the joy of your salvation, but I hope that even if you can't today, you can look back on that and say, man, that was, a, that was an amazing time when I felt the true weight of God's grace, that he loved me, that he forgave me. And if you can't look back on that and find love and joy and peace in that, wrestle with that. But you know what? I believe this is true. It's what I'm calling the believer's maxim, that sinfulness is to sorrow as holiness is to happiness. And when we repent, even day after day, as the Holy Spirit continues the work of sanctification to make us more like Christ, as we continue to repent, more repentance leads to greater joy because we are living according to our Creator's precepts. And there's beauty in that. So as we close this morning, I want to remind you this process um, I believe that the love of God motivate, motivates the mercy of God, and it's the mercy of God that motivates our repentance. But do you see this? I wish I'd put it on the screen, but I, but I want you to think. I'm going to help you visualize this, okay? I want you, your left, my right. Yeah, my left, right here. Okay, from here, think of the love of God. The love of God motivates the mercy of God. And the mercy of God motivates repentance. And all of those come down to joy. There is joy and celebration when we think of the love of God, the mercy of God, and how the mercy of God leads us to repentance. All of those funnel down into joy. There's true joy in reflecting on those things. And so as Jesus was responding to these Pharisees who were confused at why such a man of religion would have anything to do with sinners, Jesus made clear his whole mission was to come and receive sinners. And he did it by sharing three stories, one of a vulnerable thing that wandered away and his death was certain unless it be rescued. The second was this idea of this precious thing that will be sought until found, always on the searcher's mind. And three, that this idea that the one who God truly comes and works in their heart, they will have a desire to come home. So I ask you this morning as we close, where is your home? What do you do with guilt and shame? And do you doubt your reception? Let's stand and close this morning. Jesus, I am...